Welcome to the Empower Podcast, presented by the Houston Area Urban League. On this first episode, I am joined by President and CEO Judson Robinson III for a discussion about the history, relevance, and impact of the Houston Area Urban League in these uncertain economic times. Empower is a podcast presented by the Houston Area Urban League that serves to inform young professionals about the Urban League, its programs, and the various civic and social topics pertinent to the community they serve. The Urban League has always served to empower the community and understands that in order to do so, we must first engage and educate the next generation. Greetings, this is Ray Shackleford, the host of the brand new podcast hosted by the Houston Area Urban League called Empower. And today on our very first episode, I'm joined by one of my mentors, uh, I think a good friend of mine, my fraternity brother, and the president and CEO of the Houston Area Urban League, Mr. Judson Robinson III. Mr. Robinson, how you doing today? Greetings, Ray. How you doing today, brother? It's good to see you. It's good to be uh, part of this initial podcast and uh, having such a great host as yourself. I know this is going to be an exciting uh, 30 or 45 minutes. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yes, sir. I'm happy to have the opportunity. Uh, and I think as we get into the conversation, people understand why we appreciate you and your leadership so much. Uh, and so to start the conversation, I really want to help people understand uh, what the Houston Area Urban League is and its significance, uh, not only from a historical perspective, but as we move through the conversation currently uh, to the Houston community. So what what is the Houston Area Urban League? Well, that's a great question because I think a lot of people are a little confused about our mission versus some of the other uh, black civil rights organizations that are, are currently still in existence trying to do uh, the work of the people. And, and I think the biggest uh, differentiator is that we are a uh, advocacy, but also a um, organization that does a lot of the work around the advocacy that we talk about. So. Not only do we talk about the importance of uh, fair housing, uh, jobs, uh, economic opportunity, great education for our kids, et cetera, but we also have programs in those spaces whereby we are demonstrating and generating a positive impacts uh, by day-to-day -day works that help someone to, to buy a home, to start a business, uh, to um, you know, educate themselves, uh, to make sure they've got a quality job. So all the trainings uh, that go along with those types of, of advocacy pieces, we actually do on a daily basis. We touch about 10,000 people a year in terms of making sure that they've been through a first-time homebuyers class or a workforce orientation program or NCCR, which is a instruction training program. All of our programs are primarily free uh, to the public. Uh, and we allow folks to come in, they schedule time with us, they sit down with our counselors or they sit into an orientation session. We get a real clear assessment of what, what their needs are. And then with that information, we're able to kind of build an individualized plan to help them achieve the levels of, of success uh, that, you know, that they're capable of, of doing with the proper support and guidance. So it's a, it's a great organization that I think is... Uh, I, I wish that more organizations were, were set up like it. We have the uh, young professionals, which you've been a member of and been in leadership capacities and actually are, are leading nationally now. 
Uh, so, you know, people come into that organization, they, they get a lot of great uh, leadership development skills training. Uh, it leads to all kinds of opportunities for them uh, personally, professionally, making better decisions as, as adults and, and uh, um, you know, members of their family. Uh, and then of course we have the Guild and the Guild is, is an organization that's been around for a long time that really helps to make sure that as we mature through the cycles of life, uh, that we have good quality information so that you're making great decisions on the front end, as well as uh, in the later years of, of uh, you know, everyone's development. So, you know, there's, it's important, especially in these times, to know where to go for good quality information if you are an adult. If you're trying to prepare for an aging parent, if you're trying to uh, save effectively for your retirement. You know, these are the types of discussions and, and things that are important in that window of time uh, that we'll all reach one day. So again, an organization that advocates, an organization that demonstrates through programmatic response, an organization that helps develop leaders, an organization that helps to stabilize families uh, to make sure that people have, the, again, again, the quality information they need to make, the kinds of decisions that's going to create sustainability. And that's one of our number one challenges in the Black community is making sure people have good information so that we can create generational sustainability, generational wealth. You know, we're facing that really uh, strongly right now with uh, this economy and what's happening with the virus and all that. So people are searching for good information. I know we'll talk more about that as we go on, but it demonstrates uh, the necessity for programs and organizations like the Houston Area Urban League. No, absolutely. Um, and I think you definitely helped to articulate the, the critical nature of an organization like in a Houston area urban league, not only from an advocacy perspective, uh, when you look at what the organization does programmatically and from a service standpoint within the community, and even as you referenced the development of young people, volunteers within the community, so that we do have a pipeline of that next generation of leaders and even trying to give people the tools, empowering them uh, so they can be sustainable uh, for the long term and not just in the short term coming to get assistance. And I think that for you, probably more than others, the, the Urban League is very close to you uh, because if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was your father or your grandfather that was very integral in the establishment of the Urban League here in Houston. Um, and so if you would just briefly kind of touch on that from a historic perspective. Well, uh, as many of, of your viewers know, the times that we live in today weren't always as open. Uh, back in the uh, late 50s and early 60s, uh, there was a, a lot of um, challenge with trying to uh, tap into the mainstream. So if you wanted to buy a house, if you wanted to get a job, if you wanted to start a business. In many cases, uh, the traditional avenues that were available to white Americans were not available to African Americans. So we had to have our own organizations. There was the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, which is NARAB, which was because we could not uh, participate with the, um, the Houston Real Estate Association or the National Association of Realtors. So we had to have our own organization. You had the uh, National Bar Association. Again, you couldn't participate in the American Bar Association, so you had to join, you know, a organization that was really kind of set up for the benefit of African Americans because you weren't allowed. So 
So we had, you know, if you look at chambers of commerce, again, we had to have our own chambers of commerce. So, so we've always um, been at a situation where if we didn't defend ourselves, we would be uh, without, just completely isolated. So in the early 60s, uh, when we noticed that there was a need for an organization that focused on uh, civil rights and an organization that made sure there was uh, adequate uh, fair housing and access to jobs and, and all those types of things. And of course, in the 60s, uh, as many of our <clears throat> parents who might be watching remember, uh, those were also a time of tremendous uh, social unrest. So we had, you know, riots taking place across the country. We had uh, freedom rides that were taking place across the country. We had major marches on Washington that were led by you know, our, our civil rights activists of the day, uh, many of whom are icons and holidays named after. And so there was a tremendous time uh, in the 60s when we were trying to uh, achieve equal rights. And we did not have an urban league in Houston in the early 60s. Uh, my father and grandfather, that generation of gentlemen and ladies of the day were the ones who were marching for equal justice and rights and opportunities. And they were the ones who were leading these organizations that consisted of chambers and real estate companies and, and all these various associations that they could not participate in. So they created their own. So it was pretty typical of the day to uh, start your own organizations because you could not participate. Uh, so without there being a, a urban league, which had started in the early uh, teens of 1910, uh, there, there was not something like that in the South. And as, as people began to really uh, become frustrated uh, with their inability to participate in the mainstream and the lack of justice and opportunity. Uh, you know, the knock came at the door that we need to start an urban league here in Houston, Texas. And uh, believe it or not, uh, my grandfather, Judson Sr., uh, was one of those leaders of the day in the business community. So he was part of the initial board that was formed uh, that, that became the first urban league in Houston, Texas in 1968. Uh, and you know, other civil rights leaders and other business leaders were also part of that initial board. Uh, but believe it or not, it was a, it was a, it was a fellow who was a, a fairly well respected in both the black and white community by the name of Quentin Meese. He was a YMCA director, uh, but he had this relationship with the white business community and the black business community to where he could bring those discussions together and. And believe it or not, uh, uh, he was approached one day after a board meeting uh, uh, from the from the uh, the Y, and uh, <clears throat> and was asked uh, by Gerald Hines. Many of you have been to the Galleria before. Hines Development is the company that developed the Galleria. Gerald Hines is the owner of the Hines Development Company. He was one of the persons that it was a major real estate holder. Uh, in, in many places throughout the city, especially downtown Houston. And knowing that there was this civil unrest in our city and that the potential for riot and mayhem was knocking on the door, uh, he approached uh, Quentin Meese and said, you know, what is it that we need in Houston to make sure that there is more equality? Uh, but at the same time, we also know that he was, you know, personally concerned about the impact to, um, you know, his business establishments. And so the discussion really kind of began about the need for an urban league, which you had in many of the Northern cities that you didn't have 
in the southern cities, and that could be part of the reason why you had so much, you know, discontent uh, in in our, in our local communities. Uh, so again, the rest is is kind of history, but there's a tremendous story about the great migration and people moving from uh, the south to the north because of of the advancement of opportunities in the northern cities that didn't exist in the southern cities. You know, we were sharecroppers and fresh off the plantation and the, and the turn of the century. And so, you know, when the Model T and, and, and the various types of textile manufacturers, all those things, those industries started in the northern cities. And so African-Americans were actually moving uh, from some of the southern rural communities to these northern, more aristocratic communities where there was a demand for labor. And so there was this huge migration of people moving to New York and Chicago and St. Louis and all these other places. And after you look at the history of the Urban League, that's where the oldest Urban Leagues are. You know, we're 51 he years old here in Houston, but you have other Urban Leagues in those northern cities that are 100 plus years old. No, and I think to your point, we're coming up on, what is it, 110 years uh, for the National Urban League actually this year. Uh, and so yes, there, there are definitely those urban leagues across the country that have been in existence, like you said, over a hundred years. But I, I always find it interesting as it relates to the civil rights movement here at home in Houston, because you know, a lot of places had, you know, riots, um, a lot of civil unrest. And I feel like at least to my understanding, for the most part, a lot of it here in Houston, I mean, there may have been things here and there, but it, it never rose to the levels of what we saw in other parts of the country, like uh, L.A. Um, or Detroit. Um, and I guess as somebody who came up during those times, I, I, what would you say is the reason that Houston has always kind of been unique from that perspective in terms of um, not reaching those types of levels of, of unrest, especially when you look at like within the black community, because it's not like racism didn't exist in Houston. It was definitely alive and well based on conversations I've had with you, uh, my father and other people that grew up. Um, why it never exploded, um, I guess for lack of a better term to, to that degree. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, we did have the uh, the free the Freemanstown uh, revolt. Uh, we did have uh, the TSU uh, issue. Um, so we we did have some things. We had the sit-ins. We had a lot of things, but there was always kind of a mechanism to 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 control uh, the amount of exposure that those things got, the the narrative behind what they were about. Uh, whether or not the media was called to certain events and told to stay away from others. I mean, there was, you know, the business and politics at play uh, where there was a reason why the white community in our city wanted to keep, you know, the, the rumblings of, of some of the real activities that were taking place down to a, down to a low roar. Uh, there was an interest in a, in a fairly sophisticated black community too that wanted to appear to be uh, a city that was welcoming to African Americans, and and it was a good place to come and and start your business and raise your family and and do those types of things. So there was, you know, some again, um, you know, meeting of the minds between the blacks and, and white communities. Of course, you had those who were more activist oriented, and you had those who were more social, um, 
business oriented, I guess you'd say. So you you did have, you know, you didn't always have uh, the harmony uh, that appeared to exist. You know, you you know, my my good friend Lloyd Parker at Shape Community Center uh, was a longtime uh, critic of uh, of the black uh, business infrastructure for many years, and has devoted his life to that true grassroots uh, brother and sister in our community that has been left behind and forgotten, and they're not going to come to an urban league program, they're not going to start a you know, go to the small business university that we have and not going to be an American leadership forum that, you know, that that group of people still exists and they deserve support and need it. And so you still have uh, a need for, you know, all populations and segments of our of our community. Uh, and, and a lot of times it didn't appear that people uh, and imagine back in those days, there's a much larger segment of our population. Uh, that didn't have access to some of these things that people talked about. They couldn't go to TSU. They didn't, you know, have a, a, a good high school in their neighborhood. They, you know, they had all the, you know, challenges that many communities still face today. So I, I think a bit of it was um, somewhat contrived to create an image. But yes, we still had people that died in the civil rights movement right here in this city. We still had marches in the street. I remember participating in marches uh, here with my with my mother and father and, and probably, you know, your, your grandparents as well. But uh, again, it didn't get quite the um, attention as you would have in a, in a Mississippi or in a Georgia or in a South Carolina where, you know, a lot of these things were kind of the movement of the day and that's where the media was. And, and um, you know, so uh, I, I think it's one of those parts of our history that that people need to understand better. No, and you know that was enlightening to me because you know I've heard um, in other conversations that our business community has always kind of uh, been at the forefront of framing what those types of things look like uh, from the outside looking in, and so even like you said, the media coverage because it. Back then, it obviously wasn't what it is now. You're talking about social media and instant access to everything. Uh, you know, people had camera phones and they could record and upload things. And so if the press was not in our respective cities or really covering it to that degree, then, you know, it wasn't going to get that type of attention. And then so from a historical perspective, outside of those that really lived through it, and I think some of our local publications that are Black-owned, like a Forward Times, um, those stories really haven't been told and definitely haven't been highlighted uh, for people like myself and my generation to really be very much aware of it. Um, and so at the outside of the conversation, we started to just kind of talk about, you know, overall, what is the Houston Area Urban League? Um, and we, you know, briefly touched on, you know, some of the historical significance of the organization. When you look at today, in 2020 and, you know, where we are right now in, in April versus where we started this year out is a complete 180. Um, but what do you think right now is the role of the Houston Area Urban League uh, as it relates to serving our community? Well, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Houston Forward Times. Uh, we have these tremendous resources, the informer, um, the news pages, 
um, um, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's really important that we're able to capture our stories and make sure that people have quality access to information that's relevant and, and pertinent to us. When, when, uh, when things happen in our community, you can, you, can turn, you can grab your local Houston Defender or your Forward Times or any of these other newspapers, and you will see you know, what's happening in our communities. All those things that were happening with uh, Chief Short and our police department back in the early days when you know, black folks were getting you know, hit across the head and disappearing, you know, all that stuff was captured. Uh, but, but again, it wasn't covered uh, in the mainstream media. So I think our message and our voice needs to remain relevant uh, in our organizations, in our media, you know, all these things that people say, well, why, why do we still need urban league? Why do we still need an NAACP? Why do we still need all these black men? Why do we still need black colleges? Because it's, there's value and there's importance in us coming together to share our unique story and our unique challenges in participating in the American dream. Because fighting for our civil rights and having access to those tools that allow us to do that is, is very, very important. The NAACP, the Houston Area Urban, the, the Black Chamber, and a host of other organizations are out there every day uh, fighting to make sure that our people get a chance to participate uh, at a level that's equal, uh, and that is on par, that is uh, available and accessible to people, no matter what neighborhood, zip code, uh, DNA is you know, running through their veins, because everyone has the potential to do great things. Uh, but most people don't believe that to be uh, the case. So organizations like ours are on the forefront uh, to make sure. So as we go through these economic times that we're about to experience, you know, it's important uh, that our stories, uh, our response to this issue uh, is heard, that that unique uh, way of addressing things in our community uh, is, is valued and is given uh, adequate uh, respect because our population is one of the most vulnerable and sensitive to when uh, things like this happen. You know, they say when, when white America gets a cold, you know, we get the flu. Uh, and so now we have something out there that's, that's uh, devastating uh, all people, but especially those who are least prepared to respond. You know, uh, I'm not sure how many of us, you know, have three months worth of savings. I'm not sure how many of us can go a month or two without paying our rent or, you know, can miss our jobs for a month. Um, that can allow our kids who are already uh, you know, living with the learning gaps of the summer months to now be uh, challenged with that also during the course of a school year. You know, not everyone knows how to homeschool effectively or has access to broadband and internet so they can make sure their kids are staying. I mean, we have a whole host of range of problems that are unique to our community when we live as marginally as we have uh, for the last 300 years that we've been in this country. No, and I, I think that you made some great points, especially when you talk about the the need for Black media, uh, like Mrs. Karen over at the Forward Times or Mrs. Giles uh, over at the Defender, 
to make sure they're telling our stories, but also the significance of the NAACP and the Houston area urban league to continue to be able to fight and advocate uh, for those that otherwise would not have a voice or someone to champion the things that are important to them to make sure that they are able to have, um, you know, a good quality of life. Uh, and so I think those are excellent points. And one of the challenges that we've been faced with, and you and I were talking about this earlier today, not just urban leagues or nonprofits, but everyone in our country right now is dealing with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and it has impacted the manner in which we have operated traditionally significantly. Um, because I remember, you know, when I first joined the Urban League, and I think it was maybe a couple of years into you being CEO, um, we had probably in excess of 60 employees. Um, and then we had to shift as the funding models changed over the years and even our service delivery model going to the wheel and spoke model, I think is what you described, uh, to make sure that we are actually taking the services to the community and not necessarily asking them to come to us. And now with the advent or the, um, the creation of this new virus that has you know, been in our community, uh, for I think since the November, December of 2019. But with the stay at home orders, the different restrictions, uh, we're constantly having to find new ways to continue to serve the community. And so I definitely wanted to give you time to talk about how we're trying to step up to meet that challenge in these uncertain times uh, and some of the things we're doing programmatically to continue to make sure we are serving the Houston community. Man, you, you really hit on a uh, very important topic, and that is, where do we turn? Where do we turn right now when corporations are holding on to their resources, uh, when foundations and, and uh, governmental agencies are now pouring money into, you know, uh, survival-type uh, efforts, be it... Um, you know, unemployment payments or trying to keep small businesses alive with a, a limited amount of stimulus. Um, you know, those are the, the entities that we've come to expect to be able to support us in the normal delivery of, of services, even though that's still and has been now for many years underfunded. So now even those uh, opportunities are shut down for us. And again, our number one population of people that we're serving are folks who look like you and me. Uh, they're, they're, they're single moms. They're uh, people who work hourly jobs. They are people who are, you know, that didn't graduate high school or they only went to high school. They don't have a college degree or they do have a college degree, but they're looking for those opportunities that they can't afford in the normal uh, economic cycle of, of opportunity. Uh, so that's, that's our community. And if we're not supporting each other right now, uh, you know, what's going to happen to the urban leagues? Uh, we, we, we now more than ever are relying on each other for our survival. Uh, people count on us and we count on people. And the people that we typically count on right now, uh, from a funding standpoint, uh, that's uncertain. That's uncertain. But for all those 10,000 people that we've touched, that they either bought a home, or they're able to stay in a home, or they're able to start a business, or they're able to get a job because they got some training. 
we as a community have to stop uh, expecting something without giving something back. You know, that's one of the things that you all learn uh, as young professionals is the importance of philanthropy. If we're going to talk about self-sustainability, you know, I, I forget the number, Ray, you probably know it, but I think the economic uh, spending power in this country is around $2 trillion. Uh, but if you ask how much of that goes back to African-American-based organizations, uh, the numbers are, 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 you know, incrementally uh, smaller than it would be for any other race of people. We have to start supporting ourselves and supporting our own, uh, because if we're not here to help uh, the least of us, we will not be around to, to um, make a difference in the world. And the only way we can make a difference and making sure that people get access to the opportunities and, and the world finds out uh, that they're capable as leaders. I look at uh, you and a lot of your peers who, had it not been for the Urban League, may not have found some of the leadership development tools that you found and and been within the peer groups that you were that allowed you to expand and broaden the capacity that you have potentially to offer the world. And if you can offer it to the country and offer it to your community, uh, it, it, it's a good thing. It's good for everybody. Um, so I, I need to be empowered. I need to be empowered to do the work. Uh, and yeah, we figure it out every year. And like you said, when we, when we got here, we had 60 folks and People were used to coming downtown and getting the services that they need, but you know when that big contract dries up and you've got uh, you know 20 people you've got to let go, and there's no money coming in to to replace that, but the work still is needed. You know you just you just try to make it work, and you and you and you regroup and you work with what you have left, and you still try to make the difference uh, that you can. Uh, but but we should we should get out of the cycle. We should become more self-reliant. Uh, we should reprioritize where we spend our money and who we spend it with. Uh, we have a lot of little campaigns that kind of come and go about, you know, spending the black dollar. We all know how many times the black dollar turns over in our community versus, you know, where we put it and, and how many times the white dollar turns over in their community and where they put it or the brown community or the Asian community. You know, we, we, uh, we're disparate uh, when it comes to uh, uh, health education, housing, workforce, and you look at all of those economic indicators and who's not doing that great compared to other other groups of people. It's always African-American. Uh, but we are the most creative, we are the most ingenious. Uh, we can make something out of nothing like no other group of people can, uh, but, but we've got to think more broadly about, you know, where does the base of that opportunity come from? And it comes from folks who are fighting for your civil rights. They're, folks, they're fighting for your economic rights. Uh, they're, they're folks who believe in you. Uh, they're folks that, that, that uh, you know, we've got tremendous families. Uh, but, but some of the members of our families may, for whatever reason, you know, have challenges. We're the families of people that still believe in those individuals and will support them uh, so that one day they can turn their lives and their situations around. We've got to be there for each other. Uh, and we do that by supporting organizations like Urban No, absolutely. And I think that to your point, uh, there's definitely a lot of movements, like you said, that pop up periodically about, you know, buy black or black restaurant week. And we see, you know, I think some benefit from those, but definitely not to the level that we need. And there's a, a level for a greater just basically a greater uh, type of consistency across the board when it comes to that support 
uh, so that we can be more self-sustaining. And I think one of the things right now that we're trying to make sure that people pay attention to as the Houston Area Urban League along those lines is the census. Uh, we actually just had National Census Day this past Wednesday. Uh, what was that? April 1st. Um, and so thinking about that and tying into that sustainability, uh, I know I've completed the census. I know you've completed the census. Uh, we've been making sure that the staff uh, and all our supporters are doing the same. But even yesterday when I looked at the national self-response rates, I think it was floating around 43%. Um, and in the state of Texas, I think it was around 39%. And then when I looked at Houston and Harris County, it was even below that. And so we definitely have our work cut out for us. Um, but I did want to make sure that I gave you the opportunity to talk about the significance of the census, excuse me, and what that means to our community and the people that we serve. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty simple formula. You have, you have tax dollars that come into the American uh, governmental system. And when they look at how they distribute those tax dollars out for police, fire, uh, infrastructure, roads, bridges, uh, SNAP programs where our children can have food, um, uh, WIC programs, um, all of the social services that, that people require. Uh, they again look at how much money do we have. After they look at how much money do we have and this tremendous need of programs that we have, all the infrastructure, all the programs, all of the things that help our families get education or housing or all those things. They then look at where people live. And so when they ask people to fill out the census, that means that they're trying to do a count of all the people in the country so that they can then look at all the resources, all the money that they have and how to distribute it. There's a certain amount need to go to Third Ward or Fifth Ward or Sunnyside or Acres Home. Or is no one of those areas really responding? They're not being counted, so therefore, oh, we have a lot of people in the River Oaks and the Tanglewood, uh, in the Siena Plantation and the Promenade and all these other communities where people are taking the time to just be honest about the number of people that live uh, in their household and taking the, the five minutes it takes to fill out the information and send it back in to those who are requesting it or, or to go online and do the work. Knowing that, uh, no one's going to come and knock at your door because they've identified that someone who may be a, uh, a non-citizen lives in your household. Uh, they, they realize that, you know, if you do something like that, it's against the law. The people who are working at the census have taken a, a, a signed, sworn affidavit that the information they're collecting is solely for the purposes of redistributing all the money that's come into the government so they can then redeploy it out to those who responded back as to where they live. That the people who are responding understand that this is for the benefit of the people in the areas where they live. I mean, it, it's it's one of those real simple things that, you know, is a constitutional responsibility for all of us as Americans is to make sure that, you know, you're being fair to yourself and to the people that live around you. I mean, if they could put a, a library uh, across the street from you, uh, but 
but they don't because you didn't fill out the census. Well, guess what? That means that your kid who needs to, to use that computer that you can't afford uh, in your household, they could have gone across the street to use it at the library. But because uh, you were afraid or you just didn't think it was important, uh, you ended up depriving not only your child and your family, but all your neighbor, neighbors in that area from having access to that, to, that, uh, to that library. Or let's say there's a fire down the street and the fire down the street burns down an apartment complex. Well, that apartment complex has a tax value. Well, now because you've got this burned property on, you know, within proximity to your house, you know, your property values go down. Now you can't sell the house at the price you thought it was worth because you have a dilapidated property. And you know, so folks, this is not a this is not a a, um, a bad thing. This is something that we all ought to do because it's good for everybody to take the time to fill it out. Again. You know, they're going to do a lot of things to try to make sure that you do it. We've all seen the TV advertisements. I know Ray is going to community meetings. Uh, I'm doing PSAs. Uh, but, you know, we need that five, maybe 10 minutes of your time to, what is it, seven questions, Ray? Eight questions? It's not a lot. Like nine questions. Nine questions, right? So it's, 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 it's very, it's a one pager. You know, it's a yes or no. It's a, you know, add a number here or there. Drop it back in the mail, send it off, and you're you're done. Uh, and it and it's and it's made a difference in your life and the lives of your community. No, absolutely. And uh, I think you you articulated that very well. I mean, it's it's very simple. It's money for our communities. Uh, it takes less than ten minutes. And I can't think of anything more impactful that you can do in under ten minutes that will bring hundreds of billions of dollars back to your community for the next 10 years. So uh, if you haven't already done it and you're listening to us, please make sure you do go to my2020census.gov to complete that. If you do have any questions, you can definitely uh, reach out to us at the Urban League, myself personally, uh, rshackleford at haul.org, and definitely follow up to learn more about the Houston Area Urban League. We are open for business. We are continuing to serve the community and make an impact even in uncertain times. Uh, and you can do that at www.haul.org. I wanna thank our first guest for our very first episode of Empower, our president and CEO, Mr. Judson W. Robinson III. Uh, he has made his presence felt and we appreciate him and his leadership. And we'll talk to you again soon on Empower. To learn more about how the Houston Area Urban League is impacting the community and ways you can get involved, visit us online at haul.org, follow us on Twitter at HOUurbanLeague, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcasting platform you enjoy. Thanks for listening to Empower, presented by the Houston Area Urban League.